0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Skid Compass Lunch and Learn series. Today, we are hosting Dr. Donald Cohn from UCLA, who will be providing an update on the ADA Skid gene therapy clinical trials. My name is Emma Mertens, and I'm the program manager of community health at the Immune Deficiency Foundation. On behalf of the foundation, we thank you for tuning in today's program is one of many virtual education opportunities available in our 2023 programmatic lineup. We recognize that through the provision of timely, comprehensive, and accessible information, we can improve the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. We appreciate you being a part of this journey. Before we get started, I would like to point out a few tech pointers to keep in mind for today's program. This afternoon, we are using the Zoom webinar feature and attendees should be able to see the slides and hear the presenter and host speak. Attendees will not be able to activate their video camera or their microphone. There will be the opportunity for questions after the presentation. You are welcome to submit any questions you have for Dr. Cohn as you think of them throughout the session we kindly ask that questions are relevant to today's topic. Please type them once in the Q&A box in the control panel on your screen. Please do not include any personal health information, as all questions will be anonymous and read aloud. A brief disclaimer. Please remember, the information presented during this meeting is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We are here today as a trusted source and friend to provide you with information. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with questions concerning a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking it based on information presented during an educational event. Today's program is one of our many educational offerings here at the Immune Deficiency Foundation. We also offer webinars, get connected groups, peer support, ask IDF, and an annual conference. Visit our website at www.primaryimmune.org where you'll find resources, events, support services, and more. Skid Compass, an educational program of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, was created in 2018 with the purpose of guiding parents families, and the medical community through the journey of learning about this rare, life-threatening medical disorder, and find support to navigate the health challenges along the way. Visit skidcompass.org to find resources and support. Skidcompass is generously supported by our partners at Chiesi Global Rare Diseases. We are so grateful of their ongoing partnership and support. And now I'm so pleased to introduce our presenter for today. Donald Cohn is a distinguished professor in the Departments of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics, Pediatric Hematology, and Oncology, and Molecular and Medical Pharmacology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome, Dr. Cohn, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Okay, well, thank you, Emma, and I'd like to thank the IDF for inviting me and KeZ for sponsoring this series um I spoke actually just about a year ago so for those of you who are back again a lot of the slides in the first part you'll have seen recently uh but there is some new new uh, information at the end would be interesting and exciting okay hopefully you're seeing that in full screen
0: yep looks good
1: okay good uh, let me just see if make that disappear right floating meeting controls. okay, okay. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about um, ADA Skid and primarily the work that we've been doing uh, to develop gene therapy. It's been quite a, a long saga. And I'll, I'll tell you sort of the history of it and then um, what's been going on recently. Uh, and just my disclaimer, um, the, the lentiviral vector for ADA Skid that I'll talk about was licensed by my university. I'm an inventor on it. So one day there might be royalties, although it's not my retirement plan. And I'm also on several advisory boards. So just a little general background that I I, probably everyone on this call knows on on SCID. Um, So severe combined immune deficiency is the congenital absence of T and B cell function. And in the past, prior to medical treatment, it was uniformly fatal in infancy, primarily due to severe infections. And that was in in the untreated. Fortunately, it's much, much better now um and there are many different genes we know of at least 20 different genes that can cause skid and ADA deficiency which what I'll we'll, we'll, we'll talk about today causes about 12 to 15% of the cases of human skid and so that if you do the math on the number of births and the frequency of skid and the percent that's ADA it works out to about 8 to 12 patients a year born in the US and Canada with ADA skid and, and when we were very actively treating patients as they were born that's about what we were seeing and of those 20 forms of skid, it was the first one we sort of cracked the code and understood genetic, um, the basis of it in terms of the what caused it in biochemical um, and uh, what what the gene was involved in. It was this enzyme ADA that I'll, that I'll talk about. And, you know, different types of skid present with different, they all have T-cell absence, Most they all have B-cell function absence, they may or may not have uh, NK cells. So, ADA skid has complete absence or almost complete absence of all three types of lymphocytes T cells, B cells, and NK cells. And I'll show you one biochemical slide. The, the metabolite that the enzyme normally breaks down, deoxyadenosine, builds up and that's toxic to the lymphocytes. And so, there are, are several options available for patients with ADA skid. And most commonly, they're treated with an allogeneic or other gene or a transplant of stem cells from, a, from another donor, either a matched sibling donor, if there is one, which is the best option, or a matched unrelated donor, if one can be found through a registry that's a good match, or um, parents that are half-matched or half low identical can be used. And, and those uh, transplants have, have improved in the last few years. So there are multiple options separate from what I'll talk about. Then again, many of you may know there's an enzyme replacement therapy. It's adenosine deaminase conjugated polyethylene glycol, which longs its its half-life in the body. And so injections of PEG-ADA, currently marketed as Revcovi, can circulate that enzyme enough to break down those metabolites and partially restore immunity. Um, And then finally, there's what I'll talk about today, which is autologous or self-transplant with gene therapy. Here we go. So here, here's a little bit of biochemistry. So uh, for those of you who, who haven't had chemistry, this won't mean much. But this diagram on the upper left is the molecule deoxyadenosine. So it's a building block for DNA. And normally, the enzyme ADA does a simple biochemical reaction or removes this H2 or amino group. So that's the deamination. Make this next molecule on the top right, deoxyadenosine, and that can either be broken down ultimately to uric acid or can be reprocessed through a salvage pathway. This is a, a very obscure, relatively pathway, but it turns out to be important. And, and the importance was first recognized by Eloise Giblet, who's sort of one of the heroes of this story. She was at the Puget Sound Blood Center in Seattle. In the early 70s, they had a skid patient, and they wanted to find which family member would be the best donor. And this was before tissue typing had been developed. So they just looked at the different types of enzymes that people have. And some of our enzymes come in of an A form or a B form. And so they were testing which sibling had the most like the patient. One of those enzymes they tested was ADA. And, and unexpectedly, the patient had no ADA and the parents had half normal levels. And Eloise made the deduction that this may be the cause of skid. And so what we now know is, so in the absence of that enzyme ADA, this It's metabolite, deoxyadenosine, builds up at high levels throughout the body. And T cells and B cells and then K cells have very high levels of, of the enzyme, sort of the next in the pathway, put a phosphate onto it. So it makes one phosphate, diphosphate, a triphosphate. And a lot of this chemical shown at the bottom left, deoxyadenosine triphosphate builds up. Normally there's very low levels, just enough to make DNA. High levels of that are toxic to the, to the lymphocytes. And that what results in skid so as we say to the students this won't be on the test but it just sort of explains sort of you know how how this absence of an enzyme involved in dna metabolism results in skid I don't, I don't think anyone would have predicted this or thought of it it was really this chance observation to the prepared mind that, that we recognize this and, and so then this cell that i'll talk about today that we, we transplant is the hematopoietic stem cell so this is a slide that shows the formation of blood cells so on the right part of this diagram are all the mature cells we see in the circulation and at their root at the very beginning at the far left are the hematopoietic stem cells and these are the cells that throughout life can divide to self renew to maintain the stem cell compartment or they can start going along a pathway of developing and turning into all the blood cells early on some of those branch out to this lymphocyte branch that makes the T cells the B cells and NK cells and that's where the problem lies in Skid. So these cells either are not made, or even if they are made, they, they're they're non-functional. And so I, you know, I, my analogy here is that the stem cells are the babies with their whole life ahead of them; they can be anything. Cells in the middle are like the teenagers; they just divide, make lots of noise, and make more cells. And it's the adult cells on the right that you know go to work every day and do their job. And it's the absence again of these lymphocytes in Skid leads to the immune deficiency because these are the cells. That every day are patrolling against viruses, fungus, and other infections. And we know now from from the field that, in fact, we can cure multiple different genetic blood cell diseases by transplanting these cells from one person to another. And that's so I talked about match sibling donors, match unrelated donors. If we take bone marrow or other sources of, of stem cells, bone marrow, umbilical cord blood, or mobilized blood stem cells, and transplant them into a patient, and we do it right as a good match, these stem cells can engraft, and for the rest of the life of that patient, make normal blood cells. On the right, then, is a list of some of the genetic diseases of blood cells that, that have been successfully treated by this approach. Some of them are immune deficiencies, like CGD and LAD. Some of them are sort of neurologic or metabolic storage diseases, um, the red blood cell disease sickle cell and beta thalassemia, disorders like Wiscott aldrich aldic syndrome, um, then as we're talking about today, SCID, many other of the, the immune deficiencies, uh, and then the, the B cell defects like X-linked A, and CVID. In theory, any one of these can be treated giving the patient normal stem cells. We don't normally do transplants for XLA, for example, because the patients can get mostly you know, treated just by giving them immunoglobulin, and a transplant is a, is a, is a big procedure. But for these other diseases, Really transplant is about the only curative therapy. So then just a couple of slides to illustrate the process. For bone marrow transplant, there's a a donor lying on that operating table face down. So on their abdomen, needles are being put into the back of their pelvic bone to withdraw bone marrow sort of from these wings of the, the pelvis. There's enough bone marrow that can be pulled out of there by going through the skin and into the bone to do a transplant. So those cells are then collected and taken to the laboratory where they may be processed. So for gene therapy, that's where we'd process them to put the gene in that's missing. Then during that time, the patient often is given high-dose chemotherapy, get rid of the rest of the stem cells in their body. And if the cells are coming from a donor, also get rid of the rest of their immune system so they don't reject them. So then getting the transplant is actually the easiest part in some ways because the cells are just given through through an IV line into the bloodstream will flow through the bloodstream and make their way back to the bone marrow, shown in the bottom right, where they can then lodge and start growing and take over blood cell production. As I said, it's, it's a, quite an intensive procedure because of the high-dose chemotherapy, the patient is actually made more immune deficient, may not eat for several weeks after the chemotherapy. So you can see that this, this child has lots of IVs behind them. The parent and the nurse are dressed up in gowns and masks and gloves and try and not transmit any infections to the patient when it goes well over the course of about a month the blood cells start growing take over blood cell fu- function and over the course of 3 to 6 months to a year the immune system can redevelop for example in a skid child so that's sort of the classical bone marrow transplant more recently most of the transplants are not done taking the cells out of the bone marrow but actually chasing them from the bone marrow into the blood and collecting them there so this is a collection of peripheral blood stem cells by leukapheresis so it turns out that if you give someone high doses of, of growth factor, GCSF, which is marketed as neupogen, which raises your white blood cell count, if you get that for about five days, a lot of the stem cells leave the bone marrow and go into the circulation in, in the blood. And then there's another medicine, plerixafor, that we often give the, the last day that kind of boost those stem cells released into the blood. So then instead of having to take the patient to the operating room, all they need is to get a large IV and, and sit still for about three or four hours. And so from that setup, some of their blood slowly goes into this machine. It's collected in a centrifuge. that spins a density gradient. We know what density the stem cells will layer out. So those can be collected in, into a bag, and then the rest of the cells are returned to the patient. So this is happening very slowly. You know, Just a tiny bit of their blood is going out continuously over four, three, four hours and back into them. But from doing that, we can collect actually more stem cells than we can from a bone marrow harvest. I think in general, it's probably less it's difficult for the patient to go through this than to, to go through a bone marrow harvest. And then the third source of, of stem cells we transplant is the umbilical cord blood. And many of you may know that at the time a baby is born, they also have a lot of their stem cells in, in their circulation. And so the blood that comes from the baby that goes to the placenta and back, actually that's a closed system of the baby's blood. And so after they're born and the umbilical cord is clamped off, There's enough blood in the placenta that's the babies that can be collected and used as a source of stem cells for transplant. It's often not enough to transplant like a full-size large adult, but it's often plenty to treat like another child. Um, And so core blood is the third uh, source. They can either be saved privately for a single child, a private bank, or they can go to community banks where they can be available for, for patients, anyone who might need it. And, and so bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant has been applied to ADA skid for a long time. The first one was probably done in 1970 before they even knew that it was caused by ADA deficiency. And there have been you know multiple hundreds of patients with ADA skid who've had transplants. So this was the the literature as of about 10 years ago. This was a paper out of the out of Europe where they collected data on 106, which is a large number for this rare disease of patients with ADA skid who had transplanted at five different centers that were aggregated together. I, I label this as old outcomes because these patients were transplanted going back to the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, and transplant and, and other things have improved. But the the prior findings were, were, this is survival. And so patients who had a matched sibling donor, or if they happen to have a matched family donor, had a pretty good survival, 90% or so. Um, those that didn't have a sibling match donor, the results were, were much lower. So an unrelated donor was about 70%, an errant half-match was only about 50%, and a mismatch was only about 30%. So really, you know, not very good, and that's in part why we were developing gene therapy to try and improve the outcomes for these patients that didn't have a donor. Fortunately, transplant has gotten much better. And so a more recent paper that came out of the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium, I'm actually the, the last author on this, but a lot of the work was done by Jeff Cuvalier, who's at Manitoba, and a whole group of people went through the data that's been collected through the PIDTC, and many of you may have enrolled your, your, your children in this registry. We were able to go back and look at 131, so we had more than even the previous patients. We could look, although back to sort of the early transplants in, in North America, we also had a more recent group that we looked at. And so looking back at all patients with ADA SCID who had a transplant between 1982 and 2017, the overall survival was about 80%. And again, when we split it down, those who had a matched sibling donor did better. Um, and in this group of patients um, who had gene therapy, 100% of them were surviving. When we looked at just the patients in the, in the last kind of two decades, so those who had their transplants from 2000 or afterwards, survival was, was much better. It was 90%, and it didn't really matter which type of donor you had. And in fact, statistically, it was not worse than gene therapy. It, looks, it was a little lower, and there were some patients who, who, who died early on, but after that, the survival was, was quite good. So I think that's a really important point to make, that the outcomes for transplants for ADA skid, even if there isn't a matched sibling donor, Have improved a lot and that's you know that's just great news and that's because newborn screening we're picking up kids before they're sick we have better antibiotics and isolation and transplant and matching have gotten better so for a variety of reasons even if you don't have a donor but you have either an unrelated donor or a parent donor even the results are better we still think gene therapy is the best but of course i am biased and so here here's our sort of underlying hypothesis gene therapy using autologous or the patient's own stem cells that are corrected with the normal gene may have the beneficial effects on blood cell production or function without the immune complications of a transplant an allotransplant from a, from a donor and so if we use the patient's own cells it should absolutely eliminate the risks of graft versus host disease and reduce the need or eliminate the need for immune suppression that's normally given before a transplant to prevent rejection or after a transplant to prevent graft-versus-host disease. However, as we learned early on, we still need to give some chemotherapy to make space for these stem cells that were taken out and given back. So we we refer to that as marrow conditioning, which is giving some chemotherapy to sort of kill some of the stem cells in the remaining in the body so the ones we give back have a space to grow in. And in our early trials, we didn't give conditioning. We really had no engraftment. And then the group in Milan, Italy, treated their first ADA-skid gene therapy patients with low-dose busulfan, and it worked well. And so since that time, all the gene therapy patients get some condition. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. So technically, what we need to do is going back to this tree, is get a normal ADA gene to the long-term stem cell. So if we can genetically correct that cell and re-engraft it, ideally for the rest of that patient's life, all the blood cells that it makes we'll have that normal ADA gene that we put into it. We kind of have now two ways to put that normal ADA gene in the stem cells that it appears in the lymphocytes. One of it is to add it with a virus, and that's what I'll talk about mainly today, but sort of a whole new approach to doing gene therapy and manipulating genes is doing gene editing with things that you've heard about like, like CRISPR that can actually change the gene, and there are ways to either fix the mutation in the stem cell so it gets passed on, or to um, uh, add another copy of the gene, but by editing rather than by a virus. And then just one more thing, you'll see this mark, there's a protein called CD34, that's on the surface of the stem cells and the early progenitor cells. When we collect stem cells from a patient, they're actually mostly, whether it's bone marrow or blood cells, they're mostly the more mature cells, but by passing the cells through a column that has an antibody to the CD34 protein, we can collect these cells, enriching the stem cells, and get rid of these other cells. So we just have fewer cells treat. Because these, the teenagers and the adult cells, when we transplant them, they're only going to last for a few weeks at most. It's really the stem cells that we really care about that are going to be the permanent cells after the transplant. So this is a a sort of a cartoon from a a chapter I wrote with Caroline Quo, a colleague of mine, sort of illustrating, again, this process. So we start with the patient. We collect their stem cells that we've talked about. In the laboratory, we can either add a normal copy of the ADA gene with a virus like a a retro or a lentivirus that can take this DNA and put it into the chromosome of the stem cell, or as I talked about more recently, we're developing techniques to actually edit the the gene in in the cell, so actually fix the mutation, for example, the ADA gene. And then while that's going on, the patient will get some marrow conditioning to make space and the cells are transplanted back into the patient. So here's sort of another illustration of of the process. So this is a a person giving mobilized proof of blood stem cells. They're awake. This can either be a patient giving for themselves or a donor giving for another person. As I said, it's sort of a procedure that takes about three, four hours, to collect the stem cells. Then they come to our clean room good manufacturing practice Laboratory where we process the cells sort of under you know sterile conditions so the cells don't get contaminated. We then process them to remove the red cells and the platelets that are in there. Then we do that selection for the stem cells for the CD34 marker. And then we put the cells into culture. And here it's showing the stem cells in bags sort of on a rocking platform. So they get gently agitated during the time period. They'll be in that bag for about two days. We'll add the virus or we'll edit the cells as needed. Um, And now most of our trials, we then at the end of that two, three days of culture, we freeze the cells in liquid nitrogen. So they're sort of in suspended animation. We can do all the testing of them to make sure they meet all the uh, what we call release criteria. So they have to be they have to pass 100 percent of their tests in terms of how many cells are alive, their number. They have the cd thrower or marker. How many took up the gene by a measure we call the vector copy number and various other things to make sure they're, they're sterile and safe. And so when they pass all of those and we fill out the certificate of analysis, the patient can get the cells given back to them. And and I'll show you a couple of uh, illustrations of that part of the process. So this is sort of my lifetime total of ADA SCID gene therapy patients we have treated. It's a very busy slide. We'll we'll cut to the chase in a minute. Back in 1993, sort of version 1.0 of our gene therapy, we treated three babies using their own umbilical cord blood. In retrospect, our techniques weren't really as as good as they needed to be. We got very little gene transfer into their stem cells. We also didn't give them any conditioning. We spent kind of the next decade in the laboratory improving how we processed the stem cells, how we made the vector. We opened up a new series of trials that ran between about 2000 and 2012 using a retroviral vector, sort of the earlier version of gene delivery viruses, and improved growth factors a number of things. During that time, the group in Milan, and I mentioned this, published a paper where they treated two ADA SCID patients, giving them reduced intensity conditioning busulfan or low doses of busulfan chemotherapy and didn't give them enzyme and they developed immunity. And so uh, we modified our protocol and since then all of our patients have gotten busulfan. Uh, and then um, just between 2008, 2009, my whole group moved across town in Los Angeles from the Children's Hospital of LA to UCLA um, and we did a, a second trial with that retroviral vector, a phase two trial. What I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk is the work we've done after that with a lentiviral vector. And so lentiviral vectors are, are gene delivery viruses. Actually, they're based on the HIV virus, but all the HIV genes that can cause a problem are not in the system. And they're very efficient at delivering genes into cells. And so we, we've used a lentiviral vector that expresses the ADA gene and um Over the course between 2013 and 2018, we actually treated 33 patients at UCLA in that trial, and our colleagues in London treated another 20 patients during that time. That was our total, as I'll talk about at that point, we then transferred to a company. We didn't do anything for a while. Now we've had the return of ADA. So Then so far, as I'll show you, this year we've treated three patients again. So this is the diagram of the vector, and it, it doesn't mean much except to say it carries a normal human ADA gene. So it's got the instructions to make ADA enzyme. And we've, we've tweaked it a little bit with a couple of ways to get better expression. And the parts of the virus that the earlier studies with retroviruses caused problems in patients like leukemia and some ex-gid patients, those are eliminated, so they're self-inactivating. So those parts of the virus are, are gone. And the the ADA gene is just driven by its own little uh, gene cassette. And this virus works very well. It gets into stem cells very efficiently. It's made very easily. um, And it it works very well. And so uh, just to show a little of what it takes to get to a clinical trial. So back in about 2008, I was at a a meeting uh, and was talking to our colleagues from London who were also doing trials with retroviruses for ADA SCID we said we should really switch to these newer vectors lentiviral vectors they may be safer they may work better and so we decided to collaborate and so we made a number of vectors that we shared and we chose one the, the one that i just showed you as the best one that was actually made in by the london group and so we it took us about 5 years to from hey we should use a lentiviral vector getting into trial and so we did all the preclinical studies to support the fda application of an uh, NIH grant that we had from the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And we went through the, uh, the gauntlet of review. So everything in red is a regulatory review. So there was an NIH committee that would be the first stop to review the protocols. Um, we then had an FDA early meeting to talk about our plans and get guidance on what they'd wanna see in an application. Um, we applied for funding to make uh, a batch of the vector for toxicology studies. We applied to, again, uh, an, another National Heart, Lung, and Blood program Gene Therapy Resource Program at Vector made to do studies. We then applied through the IRB for Human Subject Protection, the Biosafety Committee at UCLA. We put a grant into NIAID, very helped very much by Linda Griffith, the program officer, to pay for the clinical trial, which, which we were awarded. Uh, we were going to do the trial initially also at the NIH with Fabio Condati, although he left shortly after the trial opened. So we went through their IRBs. We did all the preclinical work. We submitted the IND to the FDA, and it was accepted in 30 days. We were about ready to open the trial, but it still took almost another year. So we started treating patients in August, 2013. Our colleagues in London actually started a year before us because they they had less to do uh, to get approval to treat the trial, to treat the patients in the trial. So uh, again, this was a collaboration between investigators at University College London, Great Ormond Street Hospital in, in London, England, and us at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Mattel Children's Hospital. And so together, we did all the, the work needed to get the FDA approval. So we did, a, we did the testing in cell culture. We did the testing in mice. We developed the process for chemistry manufacturing controls for making the, the vector and the cell product at FDA standards. And we developed the, the actual clinical protocol. Um, and so it was approved by the in the United Kingdom by their MHRA in November 2012. It was approved by the FDA, the IND in 2013. Then we had to have the, the vector made sort of under clinical standards. The Indiana University has a vector production facility that makes vectors for academic early trials. They they don't make vector for sort of approved products, but it was perfect for what we needed, and that the price was was better than than a company would charge. And so that then supported multiple clinical trials, both in London and in the U.S. And so in, in the U.K., they, they treated between 2012 and 2015, 20 patients uh, led by colleagues Bobby Gaspar, Claire Booth, and Adrian Thrasher. And then we did trials in the U.S., uh, us uh, at UCLA with Fabio condotti for the initial trial, and then another trial that we did again at UCLA. So a total of that's, that's the 33 patients that I mentioned earlier. And again, the early trial was funded by NIAID, and the later trial was funded by Serum and then with Orchard Therapeutics. And so, when we started, this was sort of the schema for the trial. So this was the fresh trial, where we would, you know, patient would be referred to us. And our process is, if a, if we get a call from a doctor or a parent that they have a, a child with ADA skid, we we have a series of phone calls with the parents because typically they're they're not local. We talk about the treatment. Talk about the options, we talk about other therapies, the risks, the complications, et cetera. And then that's our first call. And then we let them think about it, talk with their physicians, or whoever else they want to talk to. And if they agree to proceed, we have another call where we have informed consent assigned, and we've given them the document to read in the in the in advance. <clears throat> so then the patients have to have a series of screening tests to make sure they're eligible for the trial. It's mainly some blood tests, an, a chest x-ray, an EKG a few other things, just to make sure that they're healthy enough to go through the procedure. And so when that's all good, they then would come to Los Angeles um, and get admitted to the hospital on Monday. Tuesday morning, they'd go to the operating room we'd do a bone marrow harvest, put in an an IV line, a a PIC line, which is a a long uh, intravenous line. We'd get the bone marrow from the patient, take it to our GMP lab, as I showed you, isolate the stem cells, and do the lentiviral gene transfer. And that whole process just takes two days. During that time, the patient would get chemotherapy as a single dose because we only had enough, we only had the one day to give the chemotherapy and still have it be out of the body by the time the cells went back. Then on Thursday, the cells, the laboratory would be washed extensively, put into a syringe and brought back to the hospital and pushed into the patient through their, their line. It's really quite a quick procedure. And then they would have a period of recovery from the chemotherapy. So usually it usually means about a month in the hospital after the chemotherapy. And if everything went right, we would then stop their um, enzyme therapy one month after the infusion of the stem cell and then follow the patients to to monitor monitor their immune recovery. And so we treated um, 20 patients under this protocol. It's one patient who came from a a, a faraway country that we didn't think we'd be able to do all the trial follow-up time points. So we did them under what's considered expanded access sort of by the trial, but not on the trial. And so we treated those 21 patients. Um, And then um, it was clear that the field was moving away from giving cells to patients fresh from the laboratory. And so we wanted to do a trial where we froze the cells before we gave them back to the patient. We'd already started doing that for some other studies. So we started thinking about that trial when uh, a company, Orchard Therapeutics, was formed that licensed this from UCLA and UCL to bring it to uh, FDA approval. And so we planned with them a trial of freezing cells, and this was funded by the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM, which has been a major funder for, for most of our clinical research. So now the, the procedure of collecting the stem cells, giving them back was, was separated into two parts. The first hospital admission would be just to get the bone marrow. So again, you know, the same consent screening, admission, bone marrow harvest, in fact, the patient could go home the next day, cells would stay with us and go into culture, the exact same process. On Thursday, instead of running them over to the hospital, we would freeze them in a liquid nitrogen freezer. And we we now know that in fact, they're perfectly fine in the liquid nitrogen for a year or more. And then we could do the testing that the whole list of tests I showed you before, make sure the cells pass all those criteria and then they would be certified as, as good for human use. So then the patients would come back for a second admission And we again, the first thing we do is put in this long IV line. Now, because the cells are frozen, we don't have to give chemotherapy all at once. And one of the things we know is that different people clear the busulfan at a different rate. And so earlier, when we were just giving a single dose, people get very different levels, and that affects how much effect they get. So now we could give three quarters of it on Monday, and on Tuesday measure the clearance from that patient individually. And based on that, we could calculate how much they needed on the second dose to hit a target exactly. So they they get the second dose, like on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we bring the cells to the bedside, thaw them, give them back.
0: And then it was
1: the same afterwards. So this was the frozen trial with frozen cells. And we treated 10 patients under this trial as planned. And then we, we did two more sort of an expand access uh, who had been born shortly after we, we finished the trial. And so this is just a map of where these 33 patients came from. And so you can see they came all across the U.S. The, the, the red uh, arrows are the patients in the FRESH trial. The yellow are in the frozen. And so they came, about a third of the patients came from Canada, about two-thirds from the U.S. I mentioned one patient came from Lebanon that was a very special case, did not have newborn screening, was very sick when he got here, but uh, is, is quite a, a healthy eight-year-old at this point. So these are just some pictures of transplant day. So this is the liquid nitrogen transport device that brings the cells frozen from the laboratory to the patient's bedside. This is nurse Lindsay getting ready ready for the transplant with all the connectors and tubings we're gonna need. Then here's the the bottle, the, the bag of stem cells that have been sitting in liquid nitrogen for about two months, thawed. And so you can see the fluid level. So there's the stem cells. They're being pulled through the tubing into a syringe. And they're just given to the patient again through that PICC line. You see, there's two syringes here. The one on the left has the stem cell product. You can see it's cloudy, whereas this is a saline flush. This is just slowly pushed through the IV line into the patient's bloodstream, and it's flushed to make sure we get all the cells. It's given to the patient. This happens in their room. The family's present. It takes, it takes more time to set up than to actually give the cells. It takes about five, 10 minutes to actually give the cells. And so, sorry, this is kind of a busy data rich slide, but just to show you, th- these are the data from the 20 patients that were on the FRESH trial and the, in cryo. For for regulatory purposes, we only presented to FDA fully the story of the patients on trial, although we did give them the information on the other ones. So this upper left panel is the age of the patients. You see that most of them were around under, or a year or under. In the first trial, we had a couple of older patients. I believe those were the ones treated at the NIH, so senior citizens at three and four years of age. Uh, the cryo patients, again, we were more, treating patients as they were born and referred. So most of them were under a year of age. So no difference in the age of the two fresh and frozen, which is one of the things we're trying to show. Uh, They got the same number of stem cells per kilo. The vector amount in the stem cells was the same. The activity was the same. The 88 per amount of vector was the same. So we're we're hoping and we we demonstrated here that the fresh and the frozen products were not different. The only thing that was different was the busulfan levels. This middle panel that just popped up shows level of busulfan that the patient got from their infusion. But on the left are the patients that got just the single fixed dose with fresh cells. You see there's a much more variation in patients who got the split was adjusted. And so um, it, it shows the adva- another advantage of giving the frozen cells is that we can more precisely give them the conditioning with the busulfan. And so this is just some slides actually we made for the the current trial, just to explain sort of what goes on after the gene therapy. So the actual transplant, as I said, is a simple infusion of the gene-modified cells through the IV line. Patients get Tylenol and benadryl in advance, so sometimes the kids are sleepy from the benadryl, sometimes they're a little hyper. The cells are infused at bedside, it's done with a family present, vital signs are monitored every 15 minutes during it and for a few hours afterwards. And now, we've given the busulfan before this, but it doesn't really start having an effect lowering the blood counts for about 10 days or so. But then the white count typically goes down well under 500, maybe even down to zero, the, the neutrophils. But then that recovers by sort of within about two or three weeks afterwards. The patients are monitored in the hospital to make sure they don't have any problems during that time. They may need a transfusion or antibiotics over those few weeks, but that's really actually quite rare. And usually they're ready to go home by about 30 days after the gene therapy. So we draw the, the labs for the research test at one month, um, and then we remove the pick line, and the patient usually goes home the next day. And then the follow-up is there's clinic visits where we take a history and exam, and do multiple blood tests. At these time points out to two years, monitor the health and assess the gene therapy. And often, almost always, these are done actually at the home physician who refer the patient. So patients don't have to come back to UCLA for all their follow-ups. Most of it's done in coordination with the home physician and, and nurses. The new trial, actually the FDA asked us to measure hearing and neurodevelopment of the patients at the time of treatment and two years later. So we're doing that now when they come for their stem cell collection. And then we will have everyone come back two years after gene therapy. So those are repeated by the same tester. And it usually takes about six months for the immune system to recover. So the patients often remain on antibiotic like Bactrim. They often will be continuing to get immunoglobulin until we find from the blood tests that they're starting to make good T and B cells. Then we start withdrawing those. So, based on lab tests showing good immune function, antibiotics and immunoglobulin will be stopped typically anywhere from 16 to 18 months, depending on that particular patient's recovery. And the long term follow up visits are required by FDA out to 15 years again, those are just really being seen by your doctor and you having a couple of blood tests to make sure there's no problems. And so we published the results of, of the combined data done at UCLA Mattel Children's, Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, a paper now two years ago um, in the New England Medicine. So we reported 50 patients, 30 from the US, 20 from the UK, who underwent went trials, as I showed you, with the CD34 cells, and the low dose B-sulfan. What we reported was that 100% of the patients who had overall survival were alive, and 96% had event-free survival, meaning they were alive and the gene therapy was sufficient for engraftment and immune reconstitution. So for 48 out of the 50, the gene therapy was successful. We failed in, in two of the patients. It didn't take, and they needed to either go back on enzyme or have a transplant. So it's not a, not a perfect record, but it's, it's quite good, we think. And so this just shows the graph of that. So... One patient that we treated, the stem cells just did not engraft, and we recognized that really early on that she wasn't getting the effect of of making ADA, and so she went back on enzyme and then had an unrelated donor transplant that was fortunately successful. One patient in England in the green line was very sick at the time of collection, wasn't on enzyme, got a very low cell dose, and by a year they recognized it, really had not achieved much immune reconstitution. So he went back on enzyme, and as far as I know, he's just remains on enzyme therapy to the present time. And this is just one figure from the paper showing T-cell counts. So the patients, when they came in, they were on enzyme. They had some T-cells, but they weren't at the normal level, which is pretty typical for enzyme therapy. It Stores enough T-cells to keep the patients out of trouble, but not normal. So then after the gene therapy, over time, T-cell counts came up to normal. So again, the US patients were followed for two years for the paper, UK uh, out to, to three years. And so the patients all achieve, other than the two that needed other treatment, all achieve normal levels of T cells. So then that's sort of the history. Then just to tell you what's happened recently. So that's the vector. And so these patients now, you know, time moves on. They're six to 11 years out from the treatment. And every one of them has had sustained immunity and no product related, nothing from problems from the vector or anything. So it really, except for those two that had the early, uh, where it didn't work early on, all the other ones are showing continued, their immune function is good, they still have as many cells in their blood with the gene. So really, you know, at least for a decade now, it's, it's quite durable. And so we've applied through the FDA for these designations that help get approval accelerated. So it has orphan drug disease designation, breakthrough therapy, and rare pediatric disease designation. And so, you know, we've kind of done our part, we're done with the research, we've proven it worked. So now it needs to become commercialized. And so back in 2016, our two universities, University College London and UCLA, licensed licenses to a company, Orchard Therapeutic. that was a startup biopharma company that it was started around trying to take this drug to FDA approval. So in 2017, we transferred the IND that we had applied for to Orchard Therapeutics. And in their meetings with FDA, FDA said that they had sufficient preclinical, the work we had done early on with UCL. And clinical data from the patients we treated apply for FDA approval. That, that's a biologic license application, which is what you submit to the FDA to get approval to, to sell your drug. The FDA wanted a control group, so Orchard did a lot of work getting historical control data from kids with ADA skid who had transplants from donors. They, they got data from Duke University and Great Ormond Street Hospital. Yeah, between them, they had 26 patients would had transplants in the previous, since 2000 to 2017. So that was gonna be the control group to show the outcomes for transplant, which the FDA required. But Orchard didn't, hadn't yet completed their development of how they make the vector and the cells at commercial standards, so the drug manufacturing pipeline. Um, and once we transferred to Orchard, no patients received this treatment after 2017. And, um, we kept getting referrals until we started putting them on a list. And as many of you know, we have this list that we've kept now all this time. When we started out, we didn't know we were really keeping a list because we thought it was all being an orchard's hand. But up to 30 patients who are on enzyme without a matched sibling donor uh, went onto our waiting list over this time. And so the good news is that it's back in our hands. I think it's good news. Uh, my comment is it's like having your college student come back and they're back in your basement because we thought we were done with this. And we're actually committed to doing a lot of work on sickle cell disease. So in May of 2021, Orchard announced they were returning the license to UCL and UCLA. And that's largely to the credit of, I assume, many of the people on this call. Many of the parents and patient advocates for these patients really started to make noise that Orchard was sitting on this curative therapy and not doing anything. And I think they got chained into giving it back. So they returned the license to us, Sorry, our teenagers back, or our, our, our young adults back in our basement, And so as soon as we knew it was coming back, we got to work. We wrote a new clinical protocol. We got it approved by the IRB at UCLA and the Biosafety Committee in um, October of 2021. Um, And here's the the protocol, phase one, two. The main difference is we want to use mobilized peripheral blood instead of bone marrow. So the the new protocol, we were going to use mobilized peripheral blood instead of bone marrow. And there had been a small molecule called LentiBoost, its market is, that was found to really increase gene transfer to stem cells and use less vector. And so we had been using that in the laboratory and other trials. So we added that to the cell processing so that the amount of vector that was on hand could treat more patients. As I said, the, the FDA wanted to do neurodevelopment and hearing testing. So that was added to the protocol. And... In the divorce settlement with Orchard, there was one batch of the lentiviral vector made at Indiana left, and so we got that. So that's what we're using uh, now to treat patients. So in January of 2022, the IND and everything came back from Orchard. CIRM had agreed to return what was left in the original grant we had. There's still some money left in that grant that went to us, then to Orchard and back. And the next day, we requested a meeting with FDA to talk about our plans. Well, the meeting occurred three months later. The FDA wanted multiple changes to the clinical protocol and how we, some of the testing we did on the cells before we gave them back. And that took us almost eight months to do and go back and forth with the FDA to get them to accept it. But in December of that year, they accepted it um, and we were ready to go from their standpoint. We had to then loop back to our IRB with the final changes from the FDA who had our approval just in January of this year. So here is, again, the title of the protocol. We're funded by... California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. I'm the sponsor for that, and then here's my group that's doing the regulatory, clinical, the cell manufacturing, and the, the testing of the, the product of the patients. And so the schema is very similar to what I showed you before for the frozen trial. We collect the stem cells and freeze them. The patients come in; they get the split through cell in. The cells reinfused. So again, the actual treatment is Monday through Friday in, in one week. And so this is what we've done so far in terms of treating. So this chart shows uh, the months of this year. And so we got approval fully in January. So we enrolled the first patient, like I think the next day that we already been talking to them. We manufactured cells for her in February, passed all the release criteria in March, and she had her transplant in um, April. So that was the first patient we had treated in over five years. And it turns out, so we treat, we've treated three patients so far this year, all three of them were five-year-olds who were born in the months after we had given this up and moved it to orchards. They were at the, the top of the list because they were the earliest referrals. They were now five years old and getting enzyme therapy and were in very good health. And so it really went very well. So we treated the second patient in, in May, the third patient in early August. And we've enrolled or we've consented that the next patient hopefully will be treating the next few months. They all had on-target busulfan levels. And one of the one of the nice surprises was when we looked at how many cells we gave the patients, it turns out with the mobilized peripheral blood in orange, we had twice as many cells as from the 12 patients that got the frozen bone marrow product. So another advantage of the mobilized peripheral blood, besides not having to have a bone marrow harvest, is we're actually giving the patients twice as many cells. So our first data point is at three months when we looked at red blood cell Ea enzymes, so we give them the stem cells. Start making, you know, we really want the lymphocytes to have ADA, but the red blood cells that are made from the stem cells also do. And the two patients who've made it out beyond three months so far actually have more ADA in their red cells than than the bone marrow recipient. So it's still very early, but we're hoping that this may actually be more more potent than than what we did before we, using the mobilized peripheral blood. And so then th- this is my last uh, data slide. Um, so here where we are, you know, so in January we opened the trial we treated three patients in the the first part of this year. Uh, To go forward, we need to demonstrate to the FDA that the drug can be made at commercial standards where where Orchard had gotten most of the way but hadn't finished. So we've been talking to commercial entities, um, uh, commercial drug manufacturing organizations uh, to see who can take on manufacturing this at a standard that will be acceptable for the FDA. We plan to very soon request a meeting with FDA to talk about our plans to commercialize this. We're hoping that meeting happens in the first part of, of next year. That meeting, what we learned from FDA and what they want, we can then support another grant to CIRM to do that work. So we hope to continue to treat patients with the Indiana vector during this period. We still have some funding from the old grant. We'll put a part of the new grant to also cover that to continue to treat three to five, six patients a year, then the commercial drug manufacturing organization will develop, they'll make the vector by their process, they'll make the cells by their process, they'll come up with all the testing. We think that will take about a year. And then once we've done that, we'll then treat three more patients using their vector and their process so that by six months later, we would have the information of those three patients and present that to the FDA for um, approval. That's our, our plan and our hope. We haven't gotten it. We haven't, this is what we'll talk about with FDA at their meeting. It's plan to ideally based on all the patients we're treating currently at UCLA, their data out to two years, plus these three new patients treated with a commercial product, use that to, to have FDA review for approval. Because as I've learned, you, you you know, once it stops being researched, it's hard to fund it and it needs to become a drug and it needs to get marketed. And so that's the, the we think is the best way for us to do this. So I'll just stop there and thank my lab. So this is actually my lab and Gay Crook's lab together at our summer party. And for those of you who are, are interacting with us these days for clinical work jordan arnold is shown right there she she's the clinical nurse specialist who's doing all the coordination with other patients she she took over from dana terrazas who, who did that for the last decade so here's our clinical team the people that have done the cell manufacturing for all these trials over the year going back to the beginning uh, the clinical work that jordan uh, dana then our regulatory coordinator uh, augustine fernandez and connie jackson We've had lots of support and funding from multiple entities and pink is the ADA work. So we started off with a small grant from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation that did some of the retro trials, second FDA trial, the second retro trial was FDA funded. Then the Lentis were NIAID from NIH, Orchard Therapeutics and CIRM. Then um, here's our many collaborators and all the ones in pink are people who've collaborated on the ADA skin work, especially our colleagues at University College London and the NIH. I will stop there. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohn. Um, We now have a few minutes available for Q&A. I see we have some great questions lined up, so we will get through as many as we can. Um, We, of course, want to be mindful of your time today, Dr. Cohn, so when you need to go, just let us know. Okay. All right, so you touched on your talk about sort of the long road that it has been getting to where we are today with this therapy starting all the way back in 2008. Um, So this individual is wondering, do you have any thoughts or lessons on translating academic research into accessible therapies, um, going all the way back into the development and the process, to the work in the lab, to clinical trials, getting FDA approval, and then finally reaching um, its availability for consumers? Do you see this process undergoing any changes, um, particularly for ultra-rare conditions, given your experience with your vector for ADA skid?
1: Yeah, so that that's that's the million-dollar question. Hopefully not a million-dollar question, but that that's that's the critical issue. You know, things I've learned along the way. So one of you know, one of the, the challenges is to start a trial in an academic center, where, which is where a lot of the new trials are started, where the new things come from. You don't have the budget of of Novartis or GlaxoSmithKline. And so it's much easier to do it, as I mentioned, with vector from an academic center like Indiana. But at some point, if it's going to become commercialized, sort of a lot of things need to be redone with the commercial vector, the commercial cells. And so that's a real problem. You know, ideally, you'd use the same manufacturing for the vector and the cells all the way through so that your early clinical data is relevant to it. So that that's that's a real challenge, and I, I think you know part of that transition from academic based to commercial is traditionally companies will be required by the FDA to make the drug like twenty times to show the reproducibility and the consistency of the manufacturing process. Well, to make a batch of cells with vector, even starting with a healthy donor, uh, might be half a million dollars to do. So if you have to do twenty of those. There's $10 million just for that step. And so we're hoping that the FDA will take sort of the the data from the academic manufacturing plus a smaller amount from the commercial and accept that for these rare diseases. You know, we we, we don't want to ask the FDA to lower their standards because their standards protect us from bad drugs. And so it's important that they be very rigorous. But I think, you know, for these rare diseases, where there is good academic experience, I think maybe there are ways to reduce the burden to get approval. And then there could be post-marketing approvals. Once it's approved, those additional manufacturing patients that are treated, that data could be added to the FDA's data set to show, you know, yes, it continues to work or, or there's a problem. So I, I, you know, that, that's, that, that's a problem. All these great therapies that we're developing in academia, making the jump. And then, you know, the, obviously the other part of it is, um, the financial part, you know, when we try to get investors, we say, oh, yeah, we got this incredible therapy. There's 10 kids a year, 10 patients. How are you going to make, you know, make, make any money off 10 patients? They're looking for, you know, 10 X return on investment. And so it's hard, it's hard to get the capital needed to sort of take it commercially. So we're, we're going to try and and, and do that. Um, and so we're probably going to spin off company that would license the rights from UCLA, um, contract with a commercial manufacturing organization and somehow attract capital to do that. The, the one other thing that I mentioned, all those uh, blue ribbons that it's won, those FDA designations, the rare pediatric disease designation, if you have that for a rare fatal pediatric disease and you get FDA approval of your drug, there's a voucher that comes with it that can be sold off to pharma and those sell for a lot of money, like hundred million, a lot of money. And if we can reach that, then that money can fund the company. So that's kind of part of our business plan is to get to approval and then use that money to fund. Because once you're approved, there's a whole order of magnitude increase. You have to now all of a sudden have marketing and you know insurance reimbursement. So you become a drug company. And um, so that money could then be used to set that up and really ideally make this sustainably available forever.
0: Thanks, Dr. Cohn. Do we have time for a couple more?
1: I do. Okay,
0: wonderful. Um, all right. This next individual wants to know is what happened with Orchard Common? Do you know if the FDA is looking into ways to make sure that this does not happen again for this treatment or for any others in development?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so unfortunately, you know, it it is, it has been relatively common. So in the biotech field, there's been a major reverse in terms of investment. And so sort of con- coincident with the pandemic around then, the investment in the field has just dropped a lot. So many biotech companies are running out of money, going out of business or narrowing their focus to look at what's going to be most profitable. And I think that's part of what with Orchard's calculation, they also had a couple of other gene therapies out of TJT and Milan for other immune deficiencies that we care very much that they, they've given back. Um, Another sort of financial reverse, Bluebird Bio, got approved in Europe for a gene therapy for beta thalassemia, another one for adrenal leukodystrophy. And in their negotiations with Germany and other payers, they couldn't come to terms. So they withdrew it from the European market. And so, and then, you know, sickle cell is probably going to have two gene therapies approved within the year. They're, They're on track to that. There's hundred thousand people in the U.S. with sickle cells. so if each one costs three million dollars, that's that's going to be difficult. So th- there's that issue down the road. You know, the the it's really not the FDA's business to rescue companies. You know, they're they're, they're a regulatory agency, and so as I said, the, hopefully they will at least have sort of you know work with with uh, sort of the more with the orphan disease drug developers to make it more feasible to get the drugs approved.
0: Thank you. All right, next question. Um, in the study comparing gene therapy and hematopoietic stem cell transplant, did those who had stem cell transplant have enzyme repl- replacement therapy first?
1: Yeah, good, good question. So that was so I, you know, I was involved in that project that led to that big study from PIDTC. That was one of the top questions on our list. Does getting enzyme therapy before a transplant improve or worsen the outcomes? And so in that graph, actually, on the on the left, there were two lines, those that got went right to transplant, or those that had enzyme before transplant, and their outcomes were not different. There's sort of different situations. People who go directly to transplant, either they have a matched sibling, so they don't go on enzyme, they just get transplanted, or some centers um, that were doing non-conditioned transplants didn't want to improve the patient's immunity with enzyme in advance, whereas those who get enzyme, they can be on that for two, three, six months and really get stabilized and be in better condition. And so there were proponents of both sides. And the data said it probably doesn't matter. Um, and so I, I'd say nowadays, most children, when they're diagnosed, unless it's known as a, a mass sibling, they can be transplanted from immediately, go on to enzyme and you know are allowed to grow up a bit and get their transplant when they're three, six months of age. And that seems to work r- really quite well. Oops.
0: Thank you. Um, I know we're just past the top of the hour. Do we have time for one more? I do. Okay, wonderful. Um, all right. This next individual wants to know how long is stored umbilical cord blood good for plant transplants in the future?
1: Uh good question. You know, we, we think it's good for you know decade or more. Um there hasn't been a lot of testing of that, you know, directly scientifically. But I know patients have been transplanted with cord blood units that were in the freezer for, for many, many years, and they seem to be, uh, uh, assuming the facility maintains them right, they, they seem to be good for a for, you know, decade or more.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And we just got another good one. If we have time for one more. Um, This individual asks, which factor would impact the decision of treating three to six children in a year? What would help accomplish these numbers of patients treated?
1: Um, So kind of what's limiting for us right now is access to the GMP manufacturing room. Um, The way it works at UCLA, basically, I have a group of people who do all the manufacturing for, for the trials that we're doing not expecting to be back in the ADA business again, we are, were committed to doing several trials for sickle cell disease. And so one of the trials was delayed in the first part of the year. So we did three ADA patients. Then We've, we have one scheduled sort of in December and it's really a matter of the time in between. And so um, it depends how many uh, other patients we need to treat. And that's sort of why it's a it's a range. Um, you know, Anytime we have any option to do it, we will we'll, we'll treat a patient, but, um, you know, as I said, we're hoping it'll be three to six a year over the next couple of years till we switch over to the to the commercial.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cohn. Again, we want to be mindful of your time. I know we're a couple minutes over, um, but we're so appreciative of your time and your insights and your expertise shared today. Um, and it sounds like we might be coming back to you next year again for another update. So thank you so much, Dr. Cohn.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening.
0: Thank you. Take care. All right, thank you so much to our audience for your wonderful questions and your participation. We really appreciate it. Um, if your question was not addressed during the program, um, go online and submit your question to Ask IDF. Visit www.primaryimmune.org ask-idf or you can also give us a call at that 800 number on your screen. Um, We have a wonderful resource navigator who will personally connect with you to answer your question or direct you to any appropriate resources. We also encourage you to explore our newly revamped website and our YouTube page to find more videos and resources. And finally, we hope you'll save the date for our 2024 PI Conference, which will be hosted in person at the Sheridan Grand Riverwalk Chicago from June 20th to 22nd of next year. And thank you everyone for joining us this afternoon and for your participation and engagement and asking all those great questions. Um, And thank you so much again to Dr. Cohn for joining us. We hope to see you at one of our many events this fall. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your day.